0: Good evening everybody, episode one eleven, and it is great to be with you tonight. You may have heard the news that Mr. Joe Biden, or the rumor seems to be is that Mr. Joe Biden isn't in control of the military, and that's the rumor. But I will tell you he is most assuredly the commander in chief. And yes, he is in control of the military, whether we like it or not, and you can pretend that he's not allowed at Camp David, but I'm on the flight path to Camp David and I've already seen helicopters to and fro and I will see them again and everyone can make up all the rumors that they want and believe QAnon if you want to. I'm done addressing QAnon and I'm not going to talk about it anymore, but this conspiracy theory, it's just going to move again. March is supposed to be the time that Trump comes back and takes over. No. First, it was going to be in November and then December and January and February. Now it's March. And then in March, it'll be late April and they will keep stringing you along because why? They want the clicks. They want the notoriety. They want the money that they get that every time you surf their site, that they have a chance to give you an ad. Or they keep your attention or you retweet something. And that's really all it's about. So. It used to be sites like the Drudge Report would be nothing but fact and reporting, and now everything has been tainted, and I would like to think that this corner of the earth we can remain as truthful as we can, as long as we can, and then the day that that stops is the day that I quit, and you have the right to unfriend me. So I hope that you can hold on. This will be a different type of show. I did this live once about an hour and 45 minutes of going through essentially a debrief or a briefing on Iran, their military capabilities, their military strength. And I think a lot of people appreciate it. But this is going in more of Iran's history and their, their strategy from their eyes of what they are doing right now. And if some of you remember, and I'm sure most of you do, who have watched me for longer than a couple of weeks, is that I said this is exactly what would happen. Donald Trump wouldn't win. On November 4th, I was suspect for about five or six days. I had some hopes, and then I started seeing the cases they were bringing, and I called it earlier than anybody. I think Mark Levin and I called it right around the same time. He was about three days after I did, is that unless they went after the constitutionality of the election, they weren't going to overturn it, and they waited too long to do that. And By the time that happened, it was a kangaroo system. Everything was so discombobulated. So much time had gone past. So many lies had been told. It's the Supreme Court and everyone else. Didn't care. And ultimately, we lost the election. I've called a lot of things over the last 111 episodes, and I will say most of them have come true, including that he was going to strike Syria and Iran, and I knew this was going to happen, and I said it was because war is the Democratic's basis for paying for the things that they spend on, which is always things that never return or have an ROI social programs, infrastructure. Art and all the things that liberals spend on, welfare. And the reason why is because those don't make money. And Democrats don't have a plan. So they tax, 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 and they spend, 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 and they war, war, war. And any basis for any economic spending government is war. So Iran was the open target. Why not North Korea? Because it gets you involved with China and Russia. Why not China? Because that would be stupid. And why not Russia? Because that would be stupid. And it comes down to any other Middle Eastern countries right now. Iran is the biggest threat when it comes to our position in the Middle East, and we're going to go over it tonight. So I'm going to explain that to you. I'm going to walk you through it. It's going to be a lot of information and a lot of detail, and it will read like a brief. And I haven't done this in 24-some-odd years, so bear with me if I get back into an old cadence. I'll try to have some humor, but I don't think it's gonna be a very humorous episode. This was requested by a lot of members. And now that we've got almost 9,000 followers, when I say a lot, I'm talking a couple hundred people sent messages and said, talk to us about Iran. Tell us what's gonna happen, what's going on. We know it is, Where? what's next? So here it is, and we'll go into it. I will try to make a little joke right away. Because this will be probably the last time through this because I tend to take myself a little too seriously. The president of Iran calls President Trump just a couple days before he left office and tells him, I had a dream last night. New York was in ruins and aflame with Iranians flying flags from above. Trump replies, funny, I had a dream last night too. Tehran was beautiful and prosperous. Happy people celebrating in the streets with big banners hanging everywhere. And they said, and then the president of Iran said, what did the banner say? And Trump simply says, I don't know. I can't read Hebrew. Episode one eleven. Like I said, my name is Matthew Spear. Wonderful to see you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for stopping by. Don't unfriend me. What do we do? Well, tonight we're going to go into what is known as geopolitical analysis and go into military strength ideals, um, and really what makes a foreign government tick. And that's probably one of the the best starts when it comes to understanding command and control strategic initiatives, the strength of the country you're going into, and of course all things come into play. Their gross national product, the amount of people that they have, the training, their friends, their allies, what regimes inside are splintered or not supporting the current regime or dictator, all of these things come into play for geopolitical. But really when you're going to move into a country and attack it, you really want to basically destroy the command and control of that country. That is the key to stop all communication, to stop the government from giving orders to faraway areas or areas where they are in other countries. And you want to strike that element as fast and as quick as possible. And once you do that, it's kind of the head of the snake. Now, redundancies are in place for larger countries, larger superpowers. Iran definitely has redundancies in several different cities, but there are weaknesses to the country, but I could go through the long diatribe of what makes Iran a super, not an enemy, but a, they are an enemy, but and not a superpower, but there's different types of enemies. There's Iraq, which essentially you can fight with sustaining with drones with very few boots on the ground. And then you have Iran, which will require multiple airstrikes, multiple hundreds upon hundreds of sorties simultaneous targeting and eventually boots on the ground naval forces air force infantry special forces all of it you're going to throw the gauntlet at iran and the reason why is because they have the strongest integrated air defense system just about any country china's up there russia's up there iran is so densely populate densely populated with integrated air defense and these are sam missiles that can hit our high-altitude, long-range, short-range bombers. They really can't do much against our Navy. Their silkworms and their outdated coastal missiles really would be taken out by the teams and other people who would target those, and we know where those are. But their IAD systems are also mobile, and that makes them extremely difficult to target and track. And although we try to do a good job of that, I promise you it hasn't gotten any better over the last 20 years as more money has piled into Iran and they've become richer. There would be heavy sustained losses from an air battle with Iran, and it wouldn't be from fighters or bombers. It would be from their IAD system. And that would help them level a short-term strike into a long-term battle. This is why you see proportionate response with Iran more than just about any other country. Iran has gotten away with so many different things. And you think by now we'd put our boot up their ass. But proportional response is what we try to do. And the reason why is because you don't want to bring instability into the Middle East. And we'll go into that tonight. So let's dive in. Let's talk about it. I've taken a lot of notes. And this is something that uh, is going to be in a lot in detail so there'll be a test later. so make sure to pay attention from iran's perspective relaxing its regional activities would not ensure that its adversaries would stop trying to weaken or change its regime because that's the one thing that iran has constantly faced is trying not to reinvent itself but reapplying hostility in order for people to leave it alone most countries that have a lot of bark and not a lot of bite like north korea like somalia like iran Will use this practice and it's worked for hundreds of years. Hadi Ajali and Masi Rui, on June 20th, 2019, Iran's Islamic Re- uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, shot down a United States RQ 4A Global Hawk BAMS D surveillance drone over the Strait of Hormuz using its new Seviam A Kordad air defense system. The incident was the accumulation of rising tensions in the Persian Gulf and nearly caused an armed confrontation between the two countries. U.S. President at that time, Donald Trump, called off a retaliatory attack at the last minute. The episode reflects Iran's confidence that despite obvious asymmetries, its regional power and reach enable it to deter the U.S. military from acting against Iran. Since the U.S. and others perceive Iran as a major threat to regional security and stability, it is important to analyze its military strategy and understand its drivers, objectives, and implications if we do have to get involved at a higher level. Some Western officials and analysts argue that Iran's military strategy is offensive in nature, aimed at expanding Iran's power and ultimately restoring the Persian Empire. Others see it as primarily defensive. Neither of these characterations is accurate, and I completely agree with this assessment, and it is one of my own. Iran's military strategy, while it includes forward defense elements, is primarily focused on deterrence, recognizing the severe limitation of its conventional military capabilities due to sanctions since 1979. That revolution, as well as depletion as a result of the Iran-Iraq war, Iran has restored to unconventional approaches, including partnerships with non-state actors to establish its military deterrent. Unable to confront threats or challenges directly, Iran has insisted instead and insisted on focusing on points of weakness in its main adversaries in order to render their cost-benefit calculations unfavorable to attacking Iran. As Iranians see it, the death of American troops have considerably more serious domestic political ramifications for a U.S. president than Iranian military fatalities would have for the Iranian leadership. This consideration has shaped Iran's multi-layered strategy for deterring military actions against it, especially an American attack, by increasing the cost of war for all of its adversaries. Talking about the drivers, the five key drivers shape Iran's military strategy. The first is historical distrust, and ongoing confrontation between Iran and the USA, which has kept regime change and military conflict on the table. The second driver is military self-reliance. Iran has to provide for its own security without foreign support anywhere. Not a member of NATO, not a member of the UN, Obviously, it gets complicated. They have to look outward. And what do they do? They hide behind Big Brother Red and Big Brother and Big Sister Red, which would be China and Russia. The third, due to decades of sanctions, is the need to optimize military expenditures and develop indigenous military technologies. Fourthly, given the mismatch it faces between threats and resources, Iran has been compelled to adopt an asymmetric warfare strategy. Finally, Iran's geopolitical position in a region that hosts competing and sometimes conflicting interests and that has given rise to strong U.S. presence has been critical in determining Iran's regional military strategy. The distrust between Iran and the U.S. dates back to 1953, when the Americans and British governments engineered a coup against Iran's Prime Minister, Mohammad Mazadeh. For geopolitical reasons, this was done. Since then, each side has compiled a long list of grievances. Iran's include the United States' support of the brutal pro-Western regime of Mohammad Reze Pehelavi, the Shah of Iran, and American backing for Iraqi President Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war. Extreme strategic and ideological tension between Iran and the U.S. has since endured. Iranian leaders have accused the U.S. of supporting various Activities to topple the regime and strongly believe that the U.S. policy on Iran aims ultimately for regime change, which Washington could choose to achieve by a military invasion. As a result, Iran's military strategy has developed primarily to ensure a robust response against a U.S. invasion or regime destabilization, so as to deter military action, would be the ultimate result. The Iran Iraq War, which lasted from 1980 to 1988, has had a major influence on Iranian military strategy. Iran's missile program was primarily a consequence of that war. After the Iraqi invasion in 1980, Iran sought to purchase from the Soviet Union an inventory of Scud B missiles to respond to Iraq attacks, which we saw that in Iraq many times with their Scud missiles. But the Soviets had an alliance with Iraq at the time and refused to provide the missiles. International sanctions barred Iran from procuring missiles elsewhere. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, the U.S., and the Gulf Corporation Council, the GCC, nations provided Saddam Hussein with sophisticated military equipment and critical intelligence. During the war, Iran first acquired Scud-B missiles from Libya, and then Syria, and then finally from North Korea. Smaller countries make strange bedfellows. Immediately after the war, deprived of any other sources, Iran turned to North Korea for 200 to 300 of these missiles. Iran also purchased surface-to-air missiles, fighter aircraft, and armored vehicles, but its military spending was and has remained small compared with many Gulf Arab states with far less territory. Iranian military expenditures shrank by 30% between 2006 and 2015 as a result of sanctions. Even when sanctions were partially lifted in 2015 and 16 because of the Iran nuclear deal and Obama and Biden delivering pallets of cash onto the tarmac, military spending returned only to 2009 levels, about 3% of their GDP, far lower than 12% reached in the 1970s under the Shah of Iran. The GCC states had an expected combined military expenditure of about $100 billion in 2019, versus about $17.4 billion for Iran. The Iran-Iraq war also reflected a historical conflict between Iran and its Arab neighbors. Even prior to the 79 revolution, Iraq was perceived as Iran's top security threat. During the war, the GCC countries provided Saddam with logistical and financial assistance by the CIA's estimate, $30 to $40 billion, and they should know because they were funneling that money, but They will never admit to that. While the 2003 U.S. intervention in Iraq relieved tension between Iran and Iraq, Iraq's friction with the GCC countries, especially Saudi Arabia, has only intensified. Thus, Iran sees two main security threats, a territorial invasion involving U.S. forces and a proxy war in the broader region that threatens Iran's interests and securities, which is what we've been doing for the last 30 years. Iran's military strategy is designed to deter both these eventualities, the pillars. Given the existing balance of power and U.S. interests in the region, the U.S. would probably lead any invasion of Iran or become involved soon after it started. Thus, Iranian assessments of U.S. military strategy, operations, and tactics are crucial to its own military strategy. Iranian military analysts have gleaned that U.S. planners consider it imperative to suppress enemy air defenses prior to undertaking land operations, and this has been the same for 25 years. How do you stop the integrated air defense system that Iran has? It is not state-of-the-art, but it can strike a plane at 72,000 feet. There's not many bombers that we have anymore or want to risk them by doing that. This will have to be a coordinated attack. This will be naval, this will be air, and this would be land. And that means people will die. To disrupt the enemy's command, control, and communication in computers, which is no longer C3, it is now C4. Not to be confused with something like Semtex or C4 for explosive breaches or detonation or demolition. Through electronic warfare and to main superiority in intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, ISR. Systems and armored forces as well. The U.S. emphasizes air operations in the early phases of a conflict, including the bombardment of enemy's infrastructure and establish of air superiority. Additionally, the U.S. leverages power projection by way of forward deployed assets, including military bases surrounding in the Middle East, carrier strike groups and other warships. The U.S. also places a premium on psychological warfare and has been reigning that for the last 20 years as well. It also ramped up with President Trump, who sent iPhones and packages and American internet devices and readings and writings from our democratic and free press, which is ultimately to help establish belief in what a free country would look like for the Iranian people to replace the current regime with a coup. And of course, on top of this was comprehensive technical superiority is also something to me. To counter these strengths, Iran has designed an asymmetric strategy whose conceptual underpinning also broadly adopted by countries, like I said, is North Korea, China, and Russia. Difference is China and Russia have enough people where we don't necessarily want to get in the ground war. Asia is not the place to do that. Neither is Russia. China and Russia is anti-access and area denial. Anti-access capabilities are meant to prevent an opposing force from entering national territory or operational areas while, aerial deni- while area denial capabilities focus on limiting capabilities of the opposing force within such areas. Something that would sustain our country for the last 250 some odd years is the ocean to our left, the ocean to our right. In the Gia Gap, we have Sona's Nets that would recognize any naval vessel coming within hundreds of miles of our coasts. Our air superiority and our E-2 Hawkeyes and our radar and our and NORAD and our satellites can pick up any movement and any plane leaving Russia, which would give us plenty of warning, hundreds upon hundreds of miles off our coasts. If they want to move in a tank regiment, if they want to move in divisions of troops, they're going to have to go through northern Canada, which is hostile environment and resembles North Korea from its mountainous terrain, and highland bogs, which is never good for tanks. And then if you want to go through Mexico, you would have to go place through places like Juarez and ultimately South America, which would create conflict and also set off every warning that we would know it's coming. Invading the United States is very difficult without a nuclear deterrent, and that's ultimately what a country will have to do, and that result is something nobody wants. The former including has diverse ballistic and cruise missiles, long-range ISR systems such as satellites, drones, and radar, submarine forces, cyber attack capabilities for disrupting command and control systems, and special operation forces able to engage in conventional and unconventional warfare. Area denial capabilities, including air forces and air defense systems that blunt an adversary's air capabilities, anti-ship missiles and torpedoes to target naval forces, precision rockets, artillery and missiles from targeting surface vessels, electronic warfare for degrading an adversary's command and control centers land and naval mines, armed speedboats for use in coastal wars and straits, special operations forces to engage with a designated area and target an uninhabited aircraft or underwater vehicles for use in intelligence collection or kinetic operations. It is daunting the amount of areas that we can hit Iran on all fronts, yet still does not solve the IADS problem. Thus, Iran's deterrence strategy rests on the five key operational Pillars, fixed and mobile air defense, number one, artillery and ballistic missiles, number two, electronic and cyber warfare, number three, limited use of air power and naval combat, five. Fixed and mobile air defense. Air defense systems are an especially important component of Iran's military strategy in light of the United States operational prioritization of air superiority. And this would be a mistake, and it was 25 years ago, and it is today. The losses, once again, for an airstrike into Iran would be absolutely catastrophic, and I will restate that fact, if successful at all. One of the most vital elements of Iran's air defense system is the integrated network that coordinates the surveillance and the radar systems utilized by all regulatory military branches and even the bazi military western forces increasing use of air to surface anti-radiation missiles or armed missiles to suppress enemy air defenses has impelled iran to make its system more mobile and compact with recent upgrades such as sevam e korda this is like i said a domestically produced advanced air defense system that utilizes mid-range high altitude solid fuel syed 2 missiles it is capable of engaging four targets simultaneously in the range of 50 to 75 kilometers at an altitude of 25 to 30 kilometers. Its compactness and mobility afford it considerable agility suitable for asymmetric tactics. The savam e system facilitated Iran's shootdown of the U.S. drone in June, more broadly illustrating its utility in area denial operations. <coughs> Ballistic missiles, buffeted by sanctions, the Iranian military now relies heavily on its ballistic and cruise missiles programs. Moreover, as Michael Elliman and Mark Fitzpatrick have pointed out, the need for missiles is also embedded in the national psyche for the days and with mid-1980s when inquiring and firing back Scud missiles was the only way to retaliate against Iraqi missile strikes on Iranian cities. Iran now has the largest such missile programs in the region. This has allowed the country to improve its anti-access capabilities with the ability to target military bases and aircraft carriers in the region. The missile program also enables Iran to demonstrate its military power through test launches and military exercises, strengthening its deterrent. Iran relies on mobile launchers and tunnels to increase missile survivability and its launching pads are scattered throughout the country. Those factors complicate enemy preemption and prevention. Iran's missile program is, of course, highly controversial and one of Iran's main bones of contention with the West and regional adversaries. Iran poses a wide variety of missiles, and they are our different estimates of the exact ranges. Iran's longer-range missiles are mainly the Quaid RF and the Sigil and the Khor-Manshar. Iran has argued that permissible range should be determined according to strategic threats, such as that posed by Israel, and emphasizes that any negotiation on Iran's missile program should be in the context of a regional arms control agreement. Nevertheless, concern about Iran's program centers not only on intended targets, but also more broadly on the composition of what Element and Fitzpatrick call the largest and most diverse arsenal in the Middle East. And the standing threat to stability it poses. In a 2017 U.S. assessment of ballistic and cruise missile threats, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Ballistic Missile Analysis Committee indicated that Iran would seek an intercontinental ballistic missile and ICBM in order to challenge the U.S. and warn that the development of Iran's space program could shorten the pathway to an ICBM because space launch vehicles use inherently similar technologies. They're very much the same, which is why that we were so advanced in our Tomahawk cruise missiles and other missiles because of what we did with the space program and the rush against the Russians, to get to the moon first. While the development of space launchers over the past 10 years has advanced the Iranian missile program, it still faces significant limitations. The maximum range of Iranian missile system is approximately, and this is approximate, 2,000 kilometers, well short of intermediate and intercontinental ranges. As detailed by a 2018 IISS assessment, Iran-Shahab-1 and Shahab-2 short-range missiles were originally obtained during the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, mainly to resist and ultimately deter Iraq. Other missiles included the Shahab-3, the Sajid-2, and the Kiam, the Qadar, and the Ahmad, and some are capable of carrying a nuclear payload. In withdrawing from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, the Trump administration cited the lack of restrictions on Iran's ongoing ballistic missile program as evidence that the deal was disastrously flawed, arguing that President Barack Obama turned a blind eye as Iran expanded the missile program. The missiles could be the delivery of vehicles for any nuclear weapons for some 35 years. However, the main purpose of Iran's ballistic missiles has been anti-access and area denial. That is likely to remain the case for the foreseeable future. Iran is crazy, but they are not stupid. More recently, Iran is focused on improving the accuracy of its short-range missiles, such as the fateh 10 or the Fate 110. Rather than increasing their range with substantially greater precision, they are now more effective anti-access and area denial weapons. Thus, Iran credibly regards its ballistic missiles as tools not only for deterrence by punishment, but also, and to a greater extent, for deterrence by denial. And this is where most of the analysts are wrong, because they believe that Iran's intent is for for defense only. Iran is capable of launching long-range missiles and ICBMs. We know that. If they have a nuclear weapon, they would absolutely use it as a last deterrent. They are not the enemy that goes quietly into the good night. They will push the button and they will light fire upon New York. Why? Because that is their ultimate goal. And that is what Iran wants. And that is why they always must be considered an offensive threat. Electronic and cyber warfare over the past decade, Iran has developed an array of domestic electronic warfare capabilities, including battlefield tactical comms, equipment resistant to EW, electronic warfare, Various command and control mechanisms, military satellite jammers, and various ciphering system. Iran has recently expanded its capability, stressing electronic support measures, electronic countermeasures, electronic counter-countermeasures, and disruption of GPS and satellite communication. Also, our IFF transponders, the identify-friendly foe, which is in all military aircraft and vehicles, which tells the good guys from the good guys and the bad guys from the bad guys, and to make sure you don't shoot the good guys and you hit the bad guys. Electronic warfare can also scramble these and make it very difficult in the field to understand if someone is IFF, friendly or foe, and this creates what is known as friendly frag or friendly f**k, and you kill your own people. Something that is absolutely not playing fair and nice, but it is war after all, and Iran is extremely good at doing this when it comes to EW countermeasures. With some radar systems reportedly having ranges of up to 500 kilometers, a prominent example of Iran's electronic capabilities involved its hijacking of the advanced stealthy USRQ-170, the Sentinel drone in December 2011, which purportedly required the Iranians to override the drone's guidance system. Iran has also developed signal intelligence gathering technologies that are useful in conducting electronic warfare. Hezbollah used some of these capabilities during its 2006 war with Israel to neutralize israeli electronic warfare capabilities evidenced by the israeli system's failure to block hezbollah's command and communications hezbollah's ability to eavesdrop on israel's communication from inside lebanon hezbollah's electronic interference with israeli's barak anti-missile abroad israeli warships and israeli's inability to jam communications out of the iranian embassy in beirut are all examples of this given that cyber attacks rarely become public and are generally deniable It is difficult to pinpoint Iran's cyber capabilities, but they are improving vastly and exponentially. It doesn't hurt when they have $100 billion from the U.S. government to fund terrorism and play practice against our allies. They are a crucial part of the country's military strategy, in particular its strategic depth doctrine. In line with its broader strategy of deterring and countering adversaries, it is a two pronged outlook, focusing firstly on the U.S. and secondly on regional adversaries, such as Saudi Arabia and Israel. This successful Stuxnet virus attack on Iran's Natanese uranium enrichment plant, excuse me, Natan's uranium enrichment plant in 2010, was a turning point for Iran's cyber strategy. Iran realized that cyber should become a major pillar out of its five of its military strategy, rapidly improved its defense and offensive cyber capabilities and developed a fuller appreciation for cyber's effectiveness as a tool of asymmetric warfare. Iran has since conducted cyber operations against the Saudi oil industry, including the West, financial services as well. And Iran's main cyber priority, however, is defensive to identify the vital points of vulnerability in its own infrastructure. A report by the British technology firm Small Media indicates that in 2015, Tehran had increased its spending on cybersecurity by 12,000% over a two-year period. uh, Iran has devised different measures to protect its C4, command, control, computer, okay, we already talked about this, assets through the formation on the provincial corps and organizational changes in the IRGC corps that confer on each corps commander the authority to take action outside the chain of command in the event of communication failures. And this is what we were talking about. You can hit their C4 or C3. Depending upon the complexity of the country, it could be C3 or C4. Some countries are behind in the times, but ultimately most of the top players will have command of control in C4. But what they have learned is to diversify and not have one single target. They learned that Iraq, when we hit Baghdad, we essentially crippled the entire country's communications and it went dark. Iran learned from this and started spreading under other two sovereign cities inside Iran and building multiple deterrents. And that is what they've been doing and having these fail safes that they can fall back on and having commanders trained at various levels to do the job of the person above them to make these calls makes their C4 extremely difficult to tackle. The human element is always the last variable in C4 that is the most difficult to kill. The Iranian military has purchased, developed and implemented coding technology to secure critical military and national security communications. Iran's cyber strategy and its investments in cyber capabilities since 2010 broadly fit within its deterrent posture insofar as they work towards an ability to impose significant costs on potential enemies in a military confrontation, make it more of an economic issue than a loss of life. Limited use of air power. In the face of superior U.S. Israeli and other regional air forces, Iranian countermeasures Include layered and mobile large-scale air defense systems, man portable air defense systems, and automatic anti-aircraft artillery with tactical roles assigned to fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters, tank killers. Iran's air assets also include various reconnaissance, surveillance, and combat drones, which have been used in the Syrian war, owning to their ability to perform nighttime as well as daytime missions in most weather conditions to reach a wide range of stationary and mobile targets to fly by remote control and autopilot and to hide and evade, something that their current Air Force does not have the capability to do effectively fly over water and during inclement weather. Naval combat, if we were to dogfight their fighter pilots, it would be shooting fish in a belt. They wouldn't even see the F-35s. They wouldn't even see the F-22s. We wouldn't even get on their radar before they were all dead. That's not what we worry about. We worry about the fact that they have deterrent. That is what their, mili- that, and their unmanned aircraft, which can absolutely make it a nightmare for infantry, special forces going in. And they will use that as a defense, yet again, to support their integrated air defense system and to protect Naval combat was one of the biggest navies in the world besides the United States. And that's not saying much because our navy is the, the most superior on the planet. Although China is building quickly, we're not talking about China. Iran has a navy and it's definitely the strongest in the area and one of the strongest on the east, but unfortunately would not stand up to long-term attacks from the United States. Iran's regional navy doctrine rests mainly on the ultra-fast speedboats and quick-attack anti-ship cruise missiles. It is rooted in the Iran-Iraq war in which Iranian forces executed frequent attacks on enemy forces in the Gulf using speedboats at low cost and with disproportionately positive results. Although various weapon systems would ultimately destroy these craft in a sustained engagement, example SeaWiz or a 50 cal, the Iranian rationale is that only one boat needs to get through an enemy's defense to cause significant financial damage in a kamikaze style attack. And this is the absolute thing. That makes our aircraft carriers susceptible. Sea is fantastic at anti-ship missiles or any aircraft, but if you create a small or multiple fast boat attack on an aircraft carrier, and we're talking multiple, Sea can only do so much. And although it can attack ground or water targets, it's not its primary function. 50 cals and other small arms are required to do that. There are other countermeasures that I will not go into that the United States Navy has has now has in place that they didn't have 10 years ago, and I will not discuss those because those are current and we're talking about Iran and nothing about the United States at this time. The point is, it is definitely a danger to our Navy and one of the only dangers to our Navy from Iran. According to some reports, Iran has between 3,000 and 5,000 speedboats that can be used to execute swarm attacks on larger ships, such as Aircraft carriers, as I said, Iran has been perfecting such attacks in which up to 100 harmed speedboats approach an enemy warship from all directions. Surprise, confusion and speed are essential to their effectiveness and the confined space of the Straits of Hormuz, which is like basically fish in a barrel, which is only about 32 kilometers across. And when you have a full carrier group, trust me, that is not a lot of room. And its narrowest point increases the probability of such a successful swarm attack. And this is what we've seen for the last 20 years as Iran has darted its boats in and out. And finally, we have a shoot order. And they have stopped this over the last two years with President Trump. And I'm assuming President Joe Biden is hoping that some of these boats get through. So we have an excuse to go to war with Iran, which I've said all along. President Trump wouldn't tolerate it, and they did have a shoot down order or a sink order for these vessels that started this practice against any carrier group in the Straits of Hormuz. And it's about time. Iran has also emphasized the importance of anti ship cruise missiles to deterrence in the Persian Gulf, developing short range ones that can be launched from a variety of naval platforms, including speedboats to target enemy ships. Sea mines, too, figure in Iran's naval strategy, especially in the Straits of Hormuz, as cost-effective tools. In particular, Iran can employ real mines along with thousands of fake ones, making it very difficult for minesweepers to neutralize the threat and decreasing the pace at which enemy naval forces can mobilize. Once again, why most intelligence will tell you that they are a defensive country. They are, but they can bring the pain, too, and we'll go into that with strategics and the depth and influence in the region. Iran's Middle Eastern neighbors are increasingly alarmed by its activities, including not only its ballistic missile program, but to an even greater extent its support for Hezbollah and the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria, Shiite militaries in Iraq, and the Houthis in Yemen, as well as its continuous via V for Israel. From an outside perspective, Iranian uh, depredations in the region have arguably made outside intervention in regional conflict more rather than less likely and thus weakened deterrence. Certainly, they have intensified the regional security dilemma. From Iran's perspective, however, relaxing its, re- relaxing its regional posture and conduct would not ensure that its adversaries would stop trying to weaken or change its regime while maintaining its stance has strikens, strengthened its deterrent. For example, the attack on Saudi Arabian oil facilities at Abakai dramatically reduced Saudi crude oil production to half the normal level in a matter of hours. While Tehran has denied any involvement and the Houthis have claimed responsibility, the larger point is that Iran is recognized as being capable of executing such an operation and willing to do so, whether directly or through the Houthis. Thus, the episode demonstrates that Iran can inflict significant strategic costs on its adversaries should a war break out. Given that the Houthis could have executed the attack with Tehran's support, the role of non-state proxies in Iran's broader deterrent strategy appears vindicated. In turn, proxies proven utility effectively depends Iran's strategic depth to Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Yemen which enables Iran to limit risk to its own territory. And Tehran can use non-state proxies to signal capability while plausibly denying culpability. Iran has a long history of using non-state actors to deter regional threats that predates the 1979 revolution. The Shah supported Kurdish insurgency against the al-Bakar government in Iraq to deter Iraq from acting on long-standing claims over parts of the border river between the two countries. During the war with Iraq, Iran gradually reorganized, banished Iraq militaries, and formed the basics for the Badar organization. Even after that war ended with the two sides' acceptance of a ceasefire pursuant to a UN Security Council resolution, Tehran feared that Saddam would attack again, so it continued to support Iraqi insurgent groups. The United States' 2003 invasion of, the, of Iraq had a strong impact on Iran's strategy. Initially, Tehran feared a U.S. attack, as the Bush administration intimidated that Iran itself could be next. Accordingly, Tehran intensified efforts to build partnerships and networks among Iraqi insurgent groups for youth, both as deterrent assets and as leverage in potential negotiations. And they're doing the same thing in Syria, which is why the question that was asked of me, why the heck are we bombing Syria? Now you know, Iran is hiding behind these proxy groups that will fight their battles for them and headhunt American soldiers, and Iran has plausible deniability to say, who? We don't know who they are. We're just innocent in all this. During the Obama administration, though, negotiations on the nuclear deal eased bilateral relations. U.S. forces in the region continue to pose a credible threat of a U.S. military strike on Iran. In response, as part of its so-called Mosaic Defense, Tehran employed its partnerships and networks to signal that Iran could inflict damage on U.S. assets in the event of American airstrikes on Iranian nuclear facilities or air bases. Iran's support of the Houthis in Yemen is a celebrated example of regional military proxy activities considered provocative. It is widely reported that Iran has sent advanced conventional weapons, including missiles as well as military advisors, to support these rebels against the recognized government, which is militarily and financially supported by Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and indirectly the United States. Whatever its particulars, Iran's support for the Houthis is simply intended to bleed its principal regional rival, Saudi Arabia, so as to drain it of its resources to mount a direct war with Iran. Indeed, Iran's spending behavior suggests that its regional ambitions and objectives are calibrated between 2011 and 2015. When multilateral sanctions were in force and Iran faced reduced oil exports, Iran decreased its military expenditures while actually expanding its role and presence in Syria Iraq and Yemen some reports indicate that Iran spends Iran spends 140 million per month in Syria and provides less than 1% of the ground forces needed to protect the Syrian regime compared to the 6 billion per month Saudi Arabia spends in Yemen in the last decade Iran has effectively outsourced direct war fighting responsibility to Hezbollah Iraq Shia militias and Shia mercenaries from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Iran's way of war in Syria suggests that the IRGC is perfecting a minimalist form of unconventional warfare, whereby it deploys small expeditionary units that link up with and command militias in the battlefield. If the IRGC has indeed mastered this ability, then it has positioned itself to use small numbers of conventional forces. On foreign battlefields to produce effects disproportionate to their size. It's from the American Enterprise Institute. The prospect of being drawn into a protracted ground conflict appears to have to discouraged regional and world powers from di- directly, interve- uh, directly intervening in Syria. Lastly, applying the strategy, all five of these pillars. While great powers have long possessed and employed anti-access aerial denial capabilities, there are now more widely available to middle powers, weaker states, and in some cases even non-state actors, which was what my reference is that it's a super enemy, not a superpower, but has the facilities to defense and offense to almost be a superpower. These weaker states, especially who want to create harm to the United States, can use these tactics these guerrilla tactics, to remain in power indefinitely because they will go unchecked. They enable inferior enemies to confront the U.S. at multiple operational and strategic levels. Iran lacks the benefit of an allied great power. While it has expanded considerable effort to develop the capabilities to produce a nuclear weapon, it is elected not to do so, at least that our intel apparatus tells us. Accordingly, Iran has felt compelled to find other ways to deter a superpower by developing and reinforcing its surface-to-air, surface ballistic missile, anti-ship ballistic missile, and cruise missile capabilities. Iran has improved its ability to target military bases, ships, and aircraft in the region— and thus to execute anti-access missions. It has also developed integrated and layered aerial defense capabilities that the world has not seen except in superpowers. And it is making these strides in an extremely cost-effective way, given the asymmetry in power and resources between Iran and one hand and the United States, Israel, and the Gulf Arab states on the other. To be sure, there have been multiple instances of destabilizing close encounters or provocations. During the first seven to eight months of 2017, there were at least 14 unsafe and or unprofessional interactions between U.S.-Iranian maritime forces after 35 and 16, 23 and 15. And in March 2017, Iranian speedboats came within 600 yards of a U.S. ship. And in August 17, an Iranian drone followed the U.S. Nimitz aircraft carrier and approached a U.S. F-18 Hornet fighter aircraft with some other encounters occurring in the Straits of Hormuz. U S officials have reiterated the dangers of such encounters numerous times calling Iran out for aggressive conduct that could lead to dangerous and rapid escalation. Such incidents largely stopped in mid 2017, but provocations have resumed since the United States disavowal of the JCPOA and ratcheting up of sanctions Despite such close encounters and explicit threats by military superior states, Iran has challenged the U.S. and its allies and the interests in the Middle East for decades, and in Tehran's view, has so far deterred an attack by the U.S. or Israel. Washington and its regional partners might contend that Tehran's strategy is not really a deterrent strategy at all due to its extraterritorial and provocative qualities, but Iran's proactive behavior is an unavoidable manifestation of the unconventional methods it has been compelled to adopt to compensate for its military shortcomings in the face of security threats posed primarily by the U.S. and Israel. Iran is not seeking to become a major military power. Its main objective is to rather to establish an effective deterrent at low cost. While it may seek to project its regional influence, it is doing so on the cheap, which is inconsistent with grand strategic designs. The analysis of this is about spot on, and it hasn't changed in 25 years, whether it's palletfuls of cash or their constant pushing the United States. They have learned how to be a thorn in the side of the U.S. Getting involved in this is costly beyond measure. This is the Middle East Vietnam. A lot of people thought that was Afghanistan, In the way that Afghanistan would never end, yes. But loss of life? No. If we go into Iran, it is going to be a long, hard war. It will not be over quickly. And it will create another fundamental flaw that we are not considering in these strategies, is it gives Russia and China the same proxy capability that Iran has for them to help Iran on the back end, and having their own proxy wars. And the only difference between Iran, Russia, and China, is that they are a superpower, both of them, and their influence and their desire is not small and not wanting, and they have the military to back it up. And if that happens, we will be in a war of epic proportions that will require more nations, and we will see a world war. Folks, that's it for my analysis right now. What do I think is going to happen? I'll be honest with you. I think these conflicts have happened before. Do I think we are going to have a full-scale invasion into Iran? No, we will have proportionate response, and Iran will continue to do what it's been doing. It's not stupid. You can poke the dog. You better not whack the dog or try to take its bone. And I think Iran isn't bold enough to do that. But they will continue to work towards a nuclear option because if these local proxies do not work, and the United States goes into Syria, or goes into other countries that Iran is funding these proxy wars and takes them out, it weakens Iran. And they need a fallback option. And this option is because they do not have a nuclear weapon, not because they don't desire to have one. Please join me tomorrow for episode 112. Thank you, everybody. Actually, it's not going to be tomorrow. I'm taking the weekend off. I'm going to enjoy playing with my kids, playing some video games, watching some hockey, and relaxing. Thank you for letting me do this show. I had a fun time. This is the fastest. I know it's 52 minutes, but for me, it went by like that. I miss doing stuff like that. I miss briefings and I miss trying to be the smartest guy in the room. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you had a good time. Folks, if you could stop by my website, I'd appreciate it. Throw me a like, a share and a follow and all of that fun stuff. By the way, these are all my call signs. I forgot to put it up tonight and uh, give me a like, share, follow. I would appreciate it greatly. Lastly, Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1- super important. Please take a moment. If you recognize a veteran needs help, reach out, call, ask for help, get them the help that they need, and this is a great place to do it. It's free of charge. If you can't make that call, ask me and I'll reach out and do it with you. And if that doesn't work, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com, click the VCL link, and you'll be connected Skype video conference right to a VCL operator. And the last thing is it's not just meant for military. It's also for civilians, too. Give them a call if you need that help. You're too important, and 22 veterans are dying a day. Folks, thank you again so much for a great show. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy your weekend, and I will see you back here on Monday for episode 112. Remember, it's just my opinion. Don't unfriend me. Leave some comments or questions below. I'd love to answer them for you. Have a great night. Bye-bye. thanks for watching don't unfriend me everybody i want to recommend alex from alekos design he works on all of my video and graphic design and he is amazing please give him a shot please head on over to his website at www a-l-e-k-o-s designs.com and one more quick thing before we go folks still point does the music intro for the show they are listeners they are fans and we absolutely love them special thanks that amazing song and you can hear Citizen Soldier at ReverbNation.com slash